when I was about nine years of age, I was very eager to get a set of encyclopedia, and my aunt was selling encyclopedia called the World Book, $100 for a set. This was a lot of money. I was raised on a farm. My parents were very poor. They could not afford the $100, and I went up to my room, and I was in tears. I wanted the encyclopedia so badly. Mm. And I was thinking, who do I know who has money? And I thought, oh, I have one rich relative, my Uncle Max. And then I thought, no, I can't help. Uncle Max cannot help me. He's dead. That just popped into my mind. And at that moment, my mother was downstairs screaming. She was on the telephone. Her niece had just phoned her. Her father, my Uncle Max, had died suddenly of a heart attack. He was a fairly, fairly young man, so this is completely unanticipated. So I began to pay attention to unusual experiences of this nature. And that meant that I listened to radio programs on the topic. I began to read articles and books on the topic. And I went to the University of Wisconsin, went to Northwestern University. I got a degree in counseling and guidance. And then my interest in parapsychology maintained itself. And I joined the new relief form group, the Parapsychological Association. I was one of the charter members. And then, lo and behold, my dear friend and mentor, Montague Ullman, the psychiatrist, got a grant of money to set up a dream laboratory to study telepathy in dreams. And he wanted me to direct it. I jumped at the chance. I left a very secure position at the university. The money was only guaranteed for three years, but I took a chance, and that's how I began to do actual research in parapsychology. Hmm. And that that research led you, I'm sure, to some very um controversial beliefs in terms of how science approaches these these subjects um so what what kind of research did you did you take part in was it um case studies was it active uh, experimentation well this work was done 50 years ago and i can explain it very briefly it was done 50 years ago and it has been now repeated in several laboratories, but the basic procedure was quite simple. We would have somebody come to our dream laboratory, a volunteer who had some history of unusual experiences, and we would introduce that volunteer to a psychologist who would go off and have dinner trying to establish some rapport and then the psychologist would be given an envelope that was determined by chance throwing the dice. And he or she would go to a different room, sometimes across the hall, sometimes even in a different part of the city, and would focus on the picture and try to send it to the sleeping subject with electrodes attached to his or her head so we could find out when the rapid eye movements indicated the person was dreaming. And the sleeping subject would try to reach out and get an impression of the picture. So it was working both ways. Now, let me give you an example. One night, the sleeping subject had a dream about going to Madison Square Garden and buying tickets for a boxing match. The sleeping subject was an artist. He had no interest in boxing. Well, the randomly selected picture by Saul Bellow, an American artist, was called Both Members of the Club, and it shows two 
boxers fighting in a ring. So that was, shall we say, a direct hit. Mm. Obviously, not everything was that direct, but enough of them were so that the matches determined by outside judges who had no idea what the dreams matched the picture were and had to sort of put them together randomly. We got results that defied the laws of chance. Mm -hmm. Sometimes one out of 20, sometimes one out of 200, one times out of 1,200. And we did this for 10 years. And as I said before, recently, an analysis was made of all of the other dream telepathy experiments done at different points in the world. And our results were replicated to such an extent that they could only be due to chance one out of 200,000 times. Anyway, all of this is written up in scientific journals. It's easily available. People can look it up and get the details. But that gives you a capsule summary of the research that we did at Maimonides Medical Center some 50 years ago. Hmm. So statistically, the results you got were very, um, very indicative of, of an effect. Yes, I have to repeat this because Wikipedia, and it's right on me, absolutely lies. They say that our results were not repeated. My friends have tried to correct the entry, but Wikipedia refuses. So, all of the hundreds of thousands of people who read Wikipedia and look up my name will think, well, this never amounted to anything. And, of course, I don't have enough money to sue Wikipedia, but they have really damaged not only my reputation, but the whole field of parapsychology. And this is only one of many experiments in parapsychology. There are seven major bodies of evidence written up by my colleague, Etzel Cardania, published in the American Psychologist, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association. And the dream experiments are one of seven bodies of evidence in parapsychology that have been repeated numerous times. So I think that the existence of something unusual going on has been demonstrated. We simply do not have all the answers. All we can say is that this is a phenomenon that requires not only additional research, but deep explanations. Mm. And many people have, um, have tried to explain these in terms of the current prevailing paradigm of science which is material science um they try to say it's either a psychological effect or it's a misunderstanding of statistics or a misuse of the scientific method in other words they try to say it doesn't happen the way that we think it does why why do you think that is and what would you say to that kind of thought well first of all if this is a statistical artifact it can it still demands attention People need to look at our statistical assumptions and see where they went wrong. So even if it's just a statistical artifact, it's still worth exam examining. And then there are people who operate from what we call the materialistic point of view, who say, well, this can be explained through advances in quantum physics and some very sophisticated explanations have been put through in terms of how quantum physics, which shows us that the world is much stranger than we realize, might explain it. And then there's another group of people who say, no, the materialistic paradigm is wrong. Consciousness came first. It's not that the brain produces consciousness. Consciousness produces the brain. Well, if consciousness is that basic, then such things as telepathy are much more easily understood. The bottom line is, we simply do not have all of the answers. People much brighter than I are searching for the answers, and there are lively discussions in books and articles and on the internet trying to make sense out of these 
what we call anomalistic phenomena. Anomaly is a decent term in psychology, something strange, something rare, something that's hard to explain through conventional means. And therefore, do you believe it to be reasonable to believe in other philosophies of science other than materialism, as I personally do? Well, again, I think you can make a case that the materialistic paradigm is wrong. But remember, there are some people who hew to the and follow the materialistic paradigm who still think they're able to explain parapsychological phenomena on the basis of what we know about the brain, about neurons, about neuroscience. So I wish both camps well. I think that they're free to pursue what certainly is a baffling issue. And I just follow the discussion and the debate with great interest. Mm. Which would you say then through your um, long experience uh, your long research, which philosophy would you say you find the most con um, convincing? You know, I'm not really smart enough to take one explanation and put it above the others. I simply follow the debate and follow the discussion, and I think, well, eventually the cards will fall where they will. I think that this is a very spirited debate, and I think it's very important in terms of pushing science forward to have a number of different points of view. And I think that, first of all, more research is needed, and the research will eventually show us which explanation makes more sense. But also the debate is so important because it's not only parapsychological phenomena that need to be explained, there's a host of other phenomena in this world that uh, need to be explained. Recently, some colleagues of mine wrote uh, The Varieties of Anomalous Experience, Investigating the Scientific Evidence. This was published by the American Psychological Association. It was a bestseller. And it's available from the American Psychological Association today. In fact, it came out of the second edition was so popular. Well, we investigate not only parapsychology, but some other anomalous phenomena, such as lucid dreaming, such as reports of past lives, such as out-of-body experiences, such as near-death experiences, even synesthesia, people that see smells and hear colors. Mm. There's a variety of anomalies that science really needs to explain and I think that finally we're waking up to the fact that uh, a diligent search is needed to expand the boundaries of psychology and other sciences. And it does seem to be facing some resistance to incorporate these phenomena into mainstream science. As you say, Wikipedia is actively almost censoring this information or, um, or lying about it, as, as you say. What, well, what yes, a great deal of resistance, and part of the resistance comes from people whose worldview is really threatened. If they have to give up their current worldview, this threatens what they believe to be true. It even threatens their livelihood. And there are numerous examples of people who have done research in anomalies, parapsychology and other anomalies, who keep it secret, because if their university found out about it, they'd be fired. So this is very dangerous. This is not in the best interests of science. So the resistance comes from a variety of different sources. When I talk with a psychologist or other scientist who is faced with this, I say, you know, you don't have time to go and read all the literature I'd advise you to take an agnostic point of view. Just say, well, I don't know one way or another. Let's wait until the dust settles and see what comes in. I think there's nothing wrong in being an agnostic. I'm an agnostic about certain things myself. I'm agnostic about flying saucers, unidentified aerial phenomena. 
and some of my friends, oh, but the evidence is so strong. There certainly are flying saucers. Other, oh my God, each one of those cases can be debunked. I really don't know, and I don't have the time to look into all of the reports and all of the articles or read all of the books. So I simply say, I simply don't know. I follow this with interest, and maybe sometime soon, we will find out one way or the other. So there are plenty of things that I don't have an answer to. And I respect people who work at parapsychology and say, I don't have an answer for this, but let's see what happens when more data are available. Mm. And at least in my opinion, it certainly seems to be a very vital subject because it it asks it looks at understanding the very foundational questions of humanity in terms of what are we what is consciousness where did we come from where are we going etc um and yet as you say it seems to be almost a threat for any scientist to undertake the research at fear of losing their careers or losing their credibility so are, are you aware of the current research going on and and what would you say to those or how do we develop the science of um, anomalous experience to bring it more into the field of legitimacy? Are you is your question how do we develop a science of anomalistic experiences? Hmm. Yes. Well, I think this is being done. I think that not only parapsychologists are investigating this, there are a number of centers that investigate anomalistic experiences using proper scientific methods using both experimental and non-experimental procedures. And so I think the search is now underway. It was dismissed for almost a century. William James was very much interested in anomalistic experiences. He was interested in mediums. He was interested in what today we call parapsychology, which in those days was called psychic research. And then the field of psychology was taken over by the behaviorists mm -hmm. who said, we're not interested in consciousness. We're not interested in inner experiences. We're interested in what can be observed and measured. All right. This helped out in some ways. It helped make psychology more of a science. It opened up the gates to studying infants who couldn't speak, mentally handicapped people who couldn't speak and so it served its purpose but now it's time to move beyond what behaviorists were able to do they made their contributions so now let's go a couple of steps further this was done by psychoanalysis it was done by cognitive psychologists and i would say that parapsychologists really owe a great deal to the advances in psychoanalysis which dealt dealt with the human unconscious the cognitive sciences, which dealt with inner experience. And so building upon what's been done in other areas of psychology, I think parapsychology can make some further advances. Mm. What do you think are the most important um, implications that uh, further research into parapsychology could um, could uncover about being human? I think that parapsychologists already uncovered some important information. Many of the experiences of parapsychology studies were at one point considered pathological and abnormal. And if a patient came to see a psychotherapist and started to talk about a dream that came true, the psychotherapist would check him out, aha, this is a sign of delusional thinking. Or if somebody came in saying, I had a message from my aunt that I should look after my mother's health, and sure enough, my mother was sick. The psychotherapist would think, oh, this is uh, 
delusional thinking mm. or this is a uh, false memory, labeling it abnormal and it's pathological. Thank heavens that is no longer being done by most reputable uh, psychotherapists. They might not have all the answers, but they know that these experiences by and large are not reported by pathologically sick and ailing people. So this is an this is a advance that already has been uh, changing the field. What has been your experience with those who would consider themselves debunkers? For example, the most famous being James Randi in his one million dollar prize. Well, actually, James Randi and I got on fairly well. And we disagreed on many things. But I did think that many of the things that he debunked deserved to be debunked. He was very good about debunking faith healers, most of whom were absolute con people, mm. who were skimming people out of money, and he did a good job of and unmasking them. So uh, I think that, shall we say, his work served a purpose and now he's no longer with us. And as they say, about the dead, let nothing good be said. So let's move on to somebody else. I think that the Committee for Scientific in for Skeptical Inquiry does a very good job in terms of debunking things that need to be debunked, especially in terms of cures that have no medical value, especially in terms of bizarre ideas about evolution mm. uh, that have no scientific value. In fact, I'm a member of CSI, and I agree with everything that they do except for parapsychology. So there's a role for skepticism and for honest skepticism, but if you're going to be a true skeptic, you're skeptical down the line and you look at evidence and some of the extreme people in that particular field simply make misstatements about parapsychology. It's strange. They can be completely on target when they debunk some of the miracle cures, whenever they debunk creationism and other uh, efforts to undercut evolutionary theory. And then they go off the deep end when it comes to parapsychology. It's like they have a blind spot. And the blind spot really tends to discredit a lot of the very positive things that they do. Where do you think that blind spot comes from in general? Isn't that a good question? I think that... I've already answered this in part. They have a worldview and they don't want to see their worldview challenged. Sometimes people, even people I admire, say, well, if what you're saying about parapsychology is true, then the whole foundations of modern science will collapse. Well, this is ridiculous. Of course, it's not going to collapse. Like I said before, this is part of nature. It simply is not something that is going to pull the rugs out of all of the other foundational work that science mm -hmm. has done. Mm -hmm. So they really go off the deep end. And I think the explanations vary from person to person. I think that the overstatements about science being challenged is one part of it. But also remember that they've made their reputation on a certain worldview. And they don't want to see a reputation undercut. Also, remember what I said before, if they were sympathetic to parapsychology and even some of the other anomalies, their university position would be threatened. And so this gets into finances, it gets into reputation. Yeah. And this is a very, very hard nut to crack. How do you convince people or even get them to open their minds if their livelihood 
which is a Ben and Brother issue, is in, is in some way threatened. Mm. Like so many things, it comes down to money. Show me the money, <laughs> as they say in the movies. It's a shame, and it, it does seem to give people the impression that they are following the science even though they're not recognizing their the biases that undercut themselves although it's very easy to spot it in others who disagree with you um and i find certainly many people who've said that if parapsychology or as even a suggestion that the brain and the mind may not be in a causal relationship is shown to be true that that, that would undercut all of science and as you say of course it it would not it would build upon the current understandings we have, which wouldn't become redundant. Well, I'll tell you an anecdote, which I think is very illustrative. A few years ago, I was invited to Portland, Oregon. A major bookstore was going to feature one of my books on parapsychology, and I was invited to be on a radio show. So I was on the radio show, and during the question and answer period, somebody called in and was very hostile. And they said, what you're doing is to undermine innocent minds. And you're shaking their belief in science. And how can you take, how can you do this? The naive people, especially young people, are giving you credibility. And their faith in science is going to be compromised. Well, I answered as best I could. The very next night, another radio station interviewed me, and somebody else phoned in saying, how can you possibly espouse such nonsense? This is shaking people's faith in God. You are undermining the pillars of religion. Yeah. Well, what can I say? Both extremes were using the same argument, and so it is today. I get a lot of static from people from very conservative traditional religions for what I do, and they think that this work is demonic. It's the work of the devil. Right. And they use the same invective as the people who are very conservative people from the halls of science. They don't realize how much they have in common. They're both very dogmatic, and they both have made up their mind. Mm. Yes. So you mentioned very briefly um, subjects like the near-death phenomena, um, out-of-body experiences, as well as others. Um, we could say deathbed visions and, and things like that, which suggests some sort of continuation of consciousness after physical death. Um, would you say that the evidence from those cases holds value despite being primarily anecdotal in nature? Or do you disagree that they are primarily anecdotal in nature? Well, of course, this is a topic that I'm not an expert on. But if you take a look at what has been published, there is not only anecdotal evidence, but there is studies in which so-called mediums who claim to communicate with people who have been deceased come up with information that they could not possibly have known. And this is something that can be statistically analyzed and put to uh, statistical tests. And the literature is filled with some very good work along these lines. People like Gary Schwartz, Julie Beischel, just to mention a few names, have done some very excellent research along those lines. Again, to give you a personal experience, a few years ago, out of nowhere, I had an email from a woman in the state of Virginia who worked for the U.S. Army. And she had been getting dreams from soldiers who had been killed in Afghanistan and Iraq. And she took those dreams to an Army chaplain who she worked with. And, yes, I know those guys. I served with them in Iraq or Afghanistan. And... He was Native American, and he went to a shaman in his tribe, and the shaman said, well, you don't have the gift of communicating. Your friend, who is an events planner, does have the gift, and 
but she doesn't have any knowledge of them. Mm-hmm. So she comes to you, and the two of you are a good team, and you can work together. So the interesting thing to me is that these were young men who had died in one of America's senseless wars, and they provided enough information so that she and the chaplain could go to the army records and look them up. Sometimes they give their name, sometimes their company, sometimes their location, and it all checked out. We collected 10 such anecdotes, some 10 such dreams. This was published in a peer reserve journal of the British Society for Psycho Research Journal. So it's there for anybody to look at and judge for themselves. And another curious thing, they said, you know, don't cry for us. We're doing fine on the other side. So this was to some extent a little bit gratifying. Mm. All of them said this. And this was the dilemma. We were wondering if we should try to contact their parents. We decided not to because this would be intrusive. And again, the parents might go to their priest or minister or rabbi, and they might be, oh, this is the work of the devil. We didn't want to get into a dispute with their religious beliefs. So we just put it out there, got it published. And again, this is one of many, many studies that indicates that there does seem to be something happening after death that we can study scientifically and that we can get some sort of handle on. No, we can't explain this too well, but the more information we get, the more explanations will sometimes fall into place. Also, you talked about out-of-body experiences. Again, considerable research has been done along these lines. I've done one study years ago at Maimonides Medical Center. A pre-medical student had reported out-of-body experiences. And so we arranged for him to come to the laboratory. And before he went into this soundproof room, we put, we built a ledge at the top of the room. Again, used random number table. This brought us to a seal, an envelope, unsealed. We shook the envelope onto the ledge so that none of us knew the picture and then he went to sleep and the first night he had no out-of-body experience we had a monitor of course with the eeg second night no out-of-body experience nothing third night bingo the eeg showed a very unusual pattern alpha waves which you don't get while you're dreaming and other unusual brain waves and then he spoke in the Bible. I just returned from being out of the body. I was able to look at the picture. It shows a sunset. Well, believe it or not, the picture that was chosen randomly was titled Memories of a Perfect Sunset. The chance of this happening by coincidence are one out of several thousand. Mm because sunsets simply do not occur that often in dreams. So then he went off to medical school. He was not able to come back for other experiments, but we wrote that up, got it published, and this is added to the many, many other studies, many long-term studies, in which people have had out-of-the-body experiences and have identified something that, uh, again, was in some ways not available to them by sensory means. That sounds very much like um, the Miss, the famous Miss Z experiment by Charles Tart. Well, it was a replication of Charles Tart's work, exactly. Yeah. And Charles Tart, Tart said he could not be absolutely sure because his participant, Miss X, could have been hiding a mirror and could have taken the mirror and poked it up to the top to see the numbers. Well, we took care of that. We investigated our sleeping subject, no mirror, nothing hidden under the pajamas. And so we took Charles Hart's experiment and made it much more foolproof and replicated his study. You're right. 
So that's you've done your homework that you know about Charles Taft's famous experiment. Yes. Yes, I've been doing this quite a while, and I did when I first found. Uh, Dr. Tart's study, it was very interesting, but unfortunately it has been subject to a lot of criticism, as you say, um, although Dr. Tart doesn't believe it possible, um, or, or it doesn't believe it likely at all that that was the case with the mirror or any other means. Yes, so it's good to hear that it was replicated with more stringent security measures in place. I think very few people would, would have known that that happened. So what You've written many, many books on on the subject, as well as others, as well as one uh, quite recently, is is I'm aware. Wh which books would you say, for those interested in the subjects that you have researched over the years, which of your books do you think is would be most? Would you push them towards first of all? Oh well, the answer to that is very easy. I was co-editor of the book Varieties of Anomalous Experience, published by the American Psychological Association. That had a great impact. It was published by a very reputable group of scientists. And as I say, it was a bestseller, revised, still on print, still selling well, and that made a very important impact. It got many people to consider that the anomalous experiences we mentioned could be studied scientifically and that they didn't need to have any uh, guilt feelings or any threats by investigating them. So that book had and still has a very important impact. And you see it cited all of the time. It led to a journal, again, American Psychological Association journal, The Psychology of Consciousness. And that journal, of which I am a member of the advisory board, uh, is highly respected. And that journal contains very well-designed articles on any number of anomalous experiences. So that book, Varieties of Anomalous Experience, and it's written in terms that I think lay people could understand if any of your listeners and viewers would like to buy it, uh, that book really had a major impact. Perfect. I will mention one other thing. I've also written books which are not in the parapsychological field, and my latest book is Understanding Suicide's Allure. And this book is important because it is a text on suicide, and it contains a lot of unusual chapters. It even has a part of a chapter on past life experiences, and how if people commit suicide, this is going to commit, this is going to have implications for their next life. More important, that book is the only book on suicide that has not one but two chapters on psychedelic facilitated psychotherapy. LSD type drugs, ayahuasca, MDMA, psilocybin, these are ushering in a whole new area for psychotherapy because they are effective, they are time-effective, cost-effective, and they're making a big impact, and suicide only being one of the areas, and there it is in our book. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is another one of my interests where I think I've made some small contributions, psychedelic science, and I've been presenting at those conferences for decades and the big uh, event will be in two years in Denver, Colorado. Uh, people and scientists from all over the world will come to talk about what's new in psychedelics. And thank heavens, the field of psychedelics has been very open to anomalous experiences because so many people who take psychedelics are having parapsychological experiences, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing experiences and the like. So some of these anomalous experiences really tend to support each other. Thank you yes. for asking. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it sounds like a book I'd be interested in because I, uh, I've had experiences with, with the two things that you talk about. I've been, I was suicidal at 16 and I'm also trained to be a cognitive behavioral therapist. So that would probably be useful in two ways for me. 
Um, in terms of out-of-body research, as you mentioned, the psychedelic research as well, what are your thoughts on, the, I suppose, the use of psychedelics as an explanatory mechanism, a materialistic explanatory mechanism for how these subject, how these out-of-body experiences take place? Um, you, for, for instance, you change the brain in a certain way, you simu- stimulate a certain part of the brain, you can trigger an out-of-body experience, therefore it's, there's nothing metaphysical or, or nothing parapsychological about it. Well, as you might or might not know, I added an entire book on the neuroscience of parapsychology, and this pulled together all of the research, which wasn't very much, on what happens in the brain when somebody is having a parapsychological experience. Now, much more has been done on what happens in the brain during psychedelic experience and how it completely shifts the serotonin level in the brain, how it bypasses the part of the cortex which is more logical and rational, how it affects uh, what we call the uh, reserve capacities of the brain. And I think that this is what enables psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to be so effective. It makes use of parts of the brain that usually are dormant and resources in the brain that are not usually accessed by mainstream psychotherapy. Now, it's not so simple. You give somebody psilocybin and they suddenly lose their depression. No, it has to be accompanied by good psychotherapy. And it doesn't seem to matter what type of psychotherapy. It can be humanistic, transpersonal, cognitive, psychoanalytic, but it has to be some solid type of psychotherapy that is joined with the psychedelic experience and that helps people make the most of their psychedelic experience. And again, it's not like conventional uh, drugs where you have to take them every day. One or two psychedelic experiences is all that's required to radically change behavior. I'm delighted with Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. This brought psychedelic experiences to the mainstream for the first time in some 50 years. And again, I was there at the beginning 50 years ago because I knew Timothy Leary. I know the whole gang. They were well-intentioned, but they didn't use, shall we say, proper scientific methods to make the best use. And so psychedelics are dormant for decades. Now, thank heavens, they've come back. And thank heavens, I've lived to see the day in which psychedelics are about to change the direction of psychotherapy. Hmm. And what, what do you find the patient's report to be the, the experience they have that changes or, I suppose, cures or greatly limits the effect of their depression? Is it... Um, do they seem to have some kind of spiritual experience which shifts their interpretation of the world completely? Or is there a, a, a distinct kind of chemical change of the brain that takes place? I think that, again, what we're finding out is that spiritual experiences do tend to be registered in the brain and can even change the brain. I think that this is of the utmost importance. It doesn't seem to be dependent on what type of spiritual experience. The type of spiritual experience is not usually the conventional type of spiritual experience you learn about in church, in synagogue, in temple. It's something that goes beyond the conventional, traditional religious experiences and it's often called more spiritual than religious. As you might know, the demographics in the United States are changing. For the first time in American history, less than 50% of the public is not a member of an organized religion. They do not have membership in any of the major faiths. Also, for the first time, the number of people who call themselves spiritual but not religious is expanding. Mm. 
especially among young people. Well, I think that there, these people have a spiritual need. They know that they need to connect with something above and beyond themselves. They need to have a broader perspective about life, in my opinion, especially they're closest to nature. And I think that this is something that needs to be attended to. Um, I'm a member of the International Transpersonal Association, which is composed of people who are transpersonal psychologists and transpersonal psychotherapists. And this is one of the services that transpersonally oriented therapists can serve. And many of them are using psychedelics to foster spiritual well-being. Now, again, this ties in with other concerns we have. As we now know, uh, nature itself is being threatened by human consumption. This didn't happen in most of human history. Indigenous people worked with nature. They did not see themselves as above, above nature, as controlling nature. They were right. And once people said that we hadn't controlled nature, we can exploit nature, that's when the trouble started. And now the climate change, which of course is not only due to human intervention, it's due to natural cycles too, but in any event, we're seeing this with the hurricanes, the storms, the tsunamis, the floods, the desertification, the pollution, we're paying the price for ignoring nature. My great friend and mentor, Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, was once asked, you believe in God? He said, of course I believe in God, but I spell it nature. He was right, and I agree with him. And I think that if we see ourselves as part of nature rather than controlling of nature, we'll be happier spiritually and other sentient beings, other animals, other life forms will be happier too. Certainly. And it seems that a lot of people who have spiritual experiences, whether, I suppose, to use the word organic or induced by some kind of psychoactive chemical, do often seem to come back with the feeling that they are part of a oneness of nature. They're part of everything and one with everything. And also that there is a higher power, I suppose, that maybe not governs everything, but that underlies everything. What, what, what do you think about that? Some people, I suppose, would call it God. You know, this is something that is easy to dismiss, but the feeling of oneness is something that comes out of a lot of psychedelic experiences, a lot of spiritual experiences, and even it's the message from parapsychological experiences. One can be united with a loved one, even with somebody who's no longer with us, and, but also with nature. I think that this feeling of oneness, uh, as best written about by my friend Larry Dossey in his book, One Mind, which I recommend to your viewers, underlying all of these feelings of oneness is some basic scientific uh, data. And I think that these feelings of oneness, if they're taken seriously, will undercut wars, uh, rivalries, all of the problems that we see besetting the world today. I don't know how to foster this or how to help it sink in. But if you look at all of the two dozen wars that are occurring all over the world, it's people who are fighting each other, who do not feel a sense of siblinghood, of connection with other people the common humanity and neglect the commonality we have with other forms of life. This is a, shall we say, a consummation devoutly to be wished. And I've been doing what I can. My efforts don't amount to too much, but more and more people are getting on the bandwagon and trying to promote this feeling of unity and trying to undercut the divisiveness, which is so much a problem in families, in political rivalries, in international rivalries, 
which are really tearing the country apart and tearing the world apart. Absolutely. So I suppose one last question that I'd have, um, as I think I, I said in the email, my, my main area of focus is the possibility surrounding life after physical death, experience after physical death. So I wonder what has your research and your discoveries, I suppose, in parapsychology, what kind of opinion has that left with you as to what they imply about life possibly after physical death? I think you can take any of the current fields of research and push them far enough and you will come to the same place, the feelings of oneness. Right now, there's a lot of research being done with what we call remote viewing, where people, for one reason or another, are able to sense what's going on in a different part of the world. Yes, it's very similar to our dream telepathy experiments at Maimonides Medical Center, but people are actually taking classes in remote viewing. I don't know if these classes are doing any good, but the fact that people are paying money to expand their consciousness is certainly a good sign. And I think that some of the well-designed studies on remote viewing are going to facilitate and are going to help this come about. Again, if your readers want to delve into this topic, the best advice I can give them is to read some of the books by Dean Radin, R-A-D-I-N. His books on parapsychology are written for the lay reader. He has three of them. Any ones of the three will be mind-expanding to your listeners and viewers. <laughs> 